Federal regulators say the grounded 737 MAX 9 aircraft can resume flying after inspections. It's Thursday, January 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, that's good news for the airlines, but questions about quality control at Boeing's factories are mounting. When you are rushing production and people are put under this kind of pressure, people take shortcuts and you make mistakes. Also, schools are closed for a fifth day in Newton as strike negotiations continue. Plus, Vermont lawmakers are considering a new type of Superfund program that would force fossil fuel companies to pay for damage caused by climate change. At the end of the day, Vermont is going to have a lot of money due because of climate change. And the question is kind of who's going to pay for that. Rain this morning and a high near 50 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. New numbers on growth in the U.S. economy are due out later this morning from the U.S. Commerce Department. NPR's Scott Horsley reports financial analysts believe the U.S. economy expanded at a solid pace in the final months of last year, largely due to consumer spending. Forecasters think the economy grew at an annual pace of 2% or more during October, November, and December. That would be a slowdown from the breakneck speed of the previous quarter, but still very respectable growth. Many economists raised their GDP forecast last week after a better-than-expected report on December's retail sales. Chief economist Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics says American shopping habits are in a comfortable zone, not too hot or too cold. They're spending just enough to keep the economy moving forward, but not so much that it would fan inflationary pressures. GDP growth for all of 2023 was likely much stronger than expected at the beginning of the year, when many forecasters thought rising interest rates would tip the economy into recession. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Former President Donald Trump is warning anyone who donates to the campaign of rival Nikki Haley will be permanently barred from the MAGA camp. He's apparently still angry that Haley won't quit the presidential race. Despite Haley's tenacity, NPR's Domenico Montanaro says the general election is shaping up clearly between Trump and President Biden. This is pretty ironic, considering that both men are unpopular, people continue to say they're both too old to be president, and people are not enthusiastic about a potential Biden-Trump rematch. But voters in their parties in these early primary states are saying that's exactly what they do want. And it's going to be acrimonious. It's going to be ugly like we saw in 2020. But it's pretty much been the most likely outcome all along. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. The next presidential contests are in Nevada and South Carolina. The trial gets underway in earnest today for a woman whose son carried out a mass school shooting in Michigan in 2021. Jennifer Crumbly faces four counts of involuntary manslaughter. From member station WDET, Alex McLennan reports prosecutors allege she could have prevented the attack. The trial is being viewed as one that could set a national precedent. It's the first time parents have been criminally prosecuted over a school shooting carried out by their child. Jennifer Crumbly's husband, James Crumbly, faces identical charges. His trial starts in March. Meanwhile, the couple's son, Ethan Crumbly, who pleaded guilty to the Oxford High School shooting, is appealing his life without parole sentence. His state-appointed attorneys have requested certain documents and communications from the teen not be used during his parents' trial. It's unclear how the Oakland County Court responded to that notice. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBWAR in Boston. Today is the fifth day of no school for Newton Public School students. Teachers are on strike. The Newton Teachers Association and the Newton School Committee have begun negotiating an update to teacher cost-of-living adjustments. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, it's the first sign of movement from the district on a major union priority. Union leaders say the discussion was a welcome change to what had been a slow negotiation. The bargaining update came after a big day on the picket line, which included a visit from Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley. Your labor is essential and I care about it. But I'm not here simply because I value your labor. I'm here because I give a damn about your lives. In a written statement, Newton Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller urged teachers to return to the classroom while the school committee continued negotiations, adding that her team is, quote, focused on the goal of settling a competitive and sustainable contract. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Governor Moore Healy's new $58 billion budget proposal is in. It's a 3 percent increase over last year, but the state's largest teachers union didn't get everything on its wish list. Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page says he's disappointed that money wasn't earmarked for raising classroom paraprofessionals' wages. And we have been fighting that fight district by district, but really um, we had proposed that some of the fair share money go to incentivize districts to really lift up the wages of these essential workers who are making literally eighteen, nineteen thousand, sometimes twenty-two thousand, twenty-three thousand dollars. That issue has caused several teacher strikes in Massachusetts, including the current one in Newton. Page says he's happy to see investments in reading literacy programs and student mental health support. Voters in 11 Massachusetts communities have rejected a plan to build a new regional vocational school in Haverhill. About 73 percent of voters in the cities and towns served by Whittier Tech rejected the proposal this week. The current school building opened more than 50 years ago and needs major upgrades to stay open. School officials say because the vote failed, the 11 communities will be responsible for paying for those upgrades. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Museum. Feel the power of play with sock skating, fun activities in the Polar Playground, and over 20 exhibits to explore. BostonChildrensMuseum.org. The Boston women's pro hockey team beat Ottawa last night. They broke a 2-2 tie with just 52 seconds left on the clock. The team came back after being down two goals. The Bruins didn't fare quite as well. They lost 3-2 to the Carolina Hurricanes, snapping a five-game winning streak. They play again tonight at 7 against the Ottawa Senators. And in basketball, the Celtics take on the Miami Heat tonight in Florida. Tip-off is at 7.30. A chance of rain this morning, and it may mix with some freezing rain. Otherwise cloudy today with high temperatures right about where they are right now, around 50. Cloudy in upper 30s tonight with more rain likely overnight. Tomorrow, a good chance of more showers through about mid afternoon. We'll have a high in the low 40s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Fidelity Investments. A dedicated wealth advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Majorities of voters in both the major political parties tell pollsters they are not looking forward to a potential rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in this year's presidential election. But does that mean voters are ready for someone from a third party? To, to get into that, I'm joined now by Joe Cunningham of South Carolina. He served one term in Congress as a Democrat. He is now the national director of No Labels. That is a centrist group that is working on gaining ballot access for a third-party challenger in the presidential race. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's take a look at the New Hampshire results. Trump won as expected, but Nikki Haley took home, what, something like, you know, 43, 44, 45% of the vote. And also, Joe Biden was not on the ballot, but he still won as the write-in. So what do those results tell you, if anything, about the appetite for someone else? Well, it still exists. If if anything, it's just growing. Uh, I mean, you talk to everyday Americans, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Two-thirds of Americans aren't happy with these presumptive nominees. Now, things could change, obviously, but as it stands now, Americans want another choice. And that's why No Labels has been engaged in gaining ballot access across the country to be prepared to offer a ticket line to a bipartisan ticket if Americans want it. But, you know, the polling does show that that Trump still has strong support among most Republican voters nationwide. Now, you are, you're, you're, as you know, you yourself are a Democrat, your former Democratic uh, representative. What do you say from your, to your colleagues who say that, look, a third party candidate would just get Trump reelected? I, I would I would categorically reject that. Uh, first of all, uh, he doesn't have strong support among the majority of Republicans. Uh, our numbers and a lot of numbers out there indicate that his strong people, you know, as far as like the folks who are with Trump regardless, is more like 20%. It's not a majority. And I think uh, some people make the mistake of believing that just because somebody doesn't like Trump, they're automatically going to line up for Biden. And I don't think that's true either. I live in South Carolina. I live with a lot of great people who do not like Trump, but may end up voting for him because they dislike Biden as well. Well, but they have the a tr- choice in South Carolina. The, the, They've got the, the, the former the tr- governor and she's not doing well there in her own home state. So you look at that and you think, well, Trump's support seems pretty solid. Well, well, let's not confuse just the Republican primary with the general electorate either. And I think it's important to note that you can't really tell how this ticket will impact it until we know exactly who's on the ticket. I mean, a lot of ways it's like complaining about the food before it even comes out of the kitchen. Okay. So your group has been touring the country talking to voters, representatives of your group. What are you, what are you, what's your message and what are you hearing? Well, again, we're not running a campaign. We're simply trying to gain ballot access. So there's running a campaign on one side where you have an identified candidate. And then on the other side, there's things like voter registration drives and gaining ballot access. These are the tenets of our democracy. These are constitutionally protected rights. We have certain groups and certain people who aren't happy with us trying to give Americans another choice and they're trying to attack us. Well, and I would I would push back. I would push back strenuously on those people. I understand. But, there, you know, I've got two major donors for no labels have filed a lawsuit claiming that your party, that the group, the group pulled a bait and switch by asking for donations to prep a, 30 par- a third party candidate that has yet to materialize. So what do you say? I mean, you can't beat somebody with nobody. So what do you say to have, that? Have you have you read that lawsuit? I, I confess it, I have it, not. It's incredibly frivolous. Um, it, it's it, it's unbelievable that somebody actually filed it. I tell you what's going to happen. You know, we're gonna, we're going to move to dismiss that. We're going to be successful, like we've been successful in fighting off lawsuits, like in Arizona, where we're able to get attorneys' fees, um, in other states as well. I mean, look, there's there is a coordinated attack among certain groups, 
uh, that do not want Americans to have another choice. Again, I'm a lifelong Democrat who fought for voting rights. And there are a lot of Democrats who say they're against gerrymandering. And then they'll engage in gerrymandering their own district. I believe there's something to be said about consistency. I think that's what people hate about politics. I understand politics. what you're saying, but it seems to me that the, the history shows that third-party candidates have drawn voters from the people who they actually are closest and most compatible to. I mean, the argument here, Ralph Nader drew votes from Al Gore, and Ross Perot drew votes from the Republicans. And so, and then you wind up electing the very person who is you're, you're most distant from. I mean, and as a Democrat, I guess I'm going to ask you, you can honestly say you don't have that concern. So how can you say it's going to draw people away from a certain candidate when you don't even know who is going to be on the ticket or if the ticket's going to be nominated? You can't say it's going to draw from one person or another without even having names. If we're being intellectually honest with each other, which mm -hmm. I think your viewers would appreciate, you cannot determine that until you determine who's on the top of the ticket and where it draws from. And how is that going to be determined? We're in the process of determining now. We're, we're, we have been assessing this election to see who the presumptive nominees will be. And if Americans want another choice, you know, after Super Tuesday, uh, we're going to make that decision. All right. That is former Democratic Congressman Joe Cunningham of South Carolina. He's now the national director of the centrist group Noble Labels, which, as we said, is working to gain ballot access for a third party candidate. Mr. Cunningham, I guess we're going to be talking again. Look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining The Federal us. Aviation Administration says grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets can fly once again. More than 170 planes have been grounded since a door plug flew off an Alaska Airlines flight in midair nearly three weeks ago. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun was on Capitol Hill yesterday trying to reassure lawmakers and the flying public. We fly safe planes. We don't Easy put airplanes in the air that we don't have 100 percent confidence in. But questions are mounting about quality control at Boeing's factories. NPR transportation correspondent Jill Rose has been following all this. Uh, Jill, so why did the FAA give it the all clear? Well, the FAA laid out what it calls a thorough inspection and maintenance plan. These jets will have to go through before they're certified to fly again. And this has taken several weeks because the FAA says it needed to gather information from airlines and Boeing to ensure that the planes are safe to fly. But FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker also said this is not just back to business as usual for Boeing. The agency is imposing a pretty sweeping production caps on the company's factories, not just the MAX 9, but other 737 lines as well. That's a rare step by the government. Uh, and the FAA regulators say they want to be satisfied that, quote, quality control issues uncovered during this process, unquote, get fixed before those caps are lifted. Yeah, and investigators have been trying to figure out why the door panel blew out uh, mid-air in the first place. So has uh, there been any clue as to why that happened? Well, nothing new from the FAA or from other federal investigators, but we did get some very interesting insight from an apparent whistleblower, a self-described Boeing employee who appears to have access to a lot of company records. Uh, the whistleblower claims to have new details about that door plug panel that blew off the Alaska Airlines jet. This person alleges that four bolts that are supposed to hold the door plug in place were removed for some repair work at Boeing's factory in Renton, Washington. The bolts should have then been replaced, but according to this person, were not reinstalled before the plane left the factory. Uh, this person laid all of this out in a detailed post on an aviation website last week that was first reported yesterday by the Seattle Times. The whistleblower says safety inspection processes at that Boeing factory are, quote, a rambling, shambling disaster waiting to happen. Mm, so what has Boeing said in response? 
Boeing has declined to comment, citing ongoing investigations and referred questions to the National Transportation Safety Board. It's interesting to note the NTSB has already raised the possibility that the bolts were not there. I should say NPR has not been able to verify the identity of this apparent whistleblower, but their explanation does seem credible to Ed Pearson. He is a former senior manager at Boeing's 737 factory. He's now the director of the Foundation for Aviation Safety. This is symptomatic of what happens when you rush production and people are put under this kind of pressure. People take shortcuts, and that's where these mistakes are made. And it didn't surprise me because this is the kind of stuff that we had seen, I had seen in the past. Today, Boeing's factory teams in Renton are scheduled to have what the company is calling a quality stand down, basically allowing production to pause for a day so that employees can take part in special training sessions. Now, uh, Joel, a couple of weeks ago, I had a flight canceled back home to L.A. because it was uh, a MAX 9 plane. And a lot of flights have been canceled because of that. So how soon could MAX 9 planes be back in the air? You know, it could happen relatively quickly. The inspections themselves are not expected to take that long. Uh, United Airlines says some of its MAX 9 planes could start flying again on Sunday. Alaska Airlines says that a few could be flying as soon as tomorrow. Whether the public is ready to start flying on these planes, that is another question. Um, The answer could be coming sooner rather than later. All right, that's NPR transportation correspondent Joel Rose. Joel, thanks. You're welcome. At a hospital in Cameroon, healthcare workers this week started giving malaria shots to babies. This makes Cameroon and Central Africa the first country to have a routine childhood vaccination program against the illness, which is spread by mosquitoes and is common there. It affects everybody. Wilfred von Mbachem is a professor of public health biotechnology and a tribal leader in Cameroon. He has personal experience with malaria. Of course, I grew up here and therefore I've had I think the the first time that I knew that this was malaria uh, was when I couldn't go to school, as young an age that I was, and surviving it with a lot of muscular aches, fatigue, and headaches, and fever. The vaccine alone won't end malaria, but it can reduce the risk of severe disease by more than 30%. Now, that may sound low, but it could make a big difference in Africa, where malaria killed close to half a million children under five in 2022, especially if it's used in combination with other protective measures, such as insecticide-treated bed nets and antimalarial pills. Mbachem says the vaccine could also have other benefits for kids. The other aspect of malaria is that it affects cognition. And therefore, without malaria, you'll be able to take your exams and write and feel that you've actually gained something in school. One group that helps to fund and distribute the vaccine is Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, where Aurelia Guyen is program director. If you're a parent and you bring your child in for their regular vaccinations, now in 42 districts in Cameroon, the parent will be offered a dose of malaria vaccine. The World Health Organization says the countries that piloted the vaccine, Kenya, Ghana, and Malawi, saw a drop in mortality and hospitalization. Now more countries want it. We have 20 countries approved for introduction over the course of 2024. Burkina Faso is expected to roll the vaccine out next with Benin and Liberia to follow.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of two American flagged ships attacked by Houthi rebels earlier this week. U.S. officials say the ships were carrying cargo for the U.S. Defense and State Departments, and the Navy intercepted some of the incoming fire. And in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, hundreds of Israeli protesters briefly blocked the main highway in Tel Aviv last night, calling on the government to end the war in Gaza and free remaining hostages. We'll hear from a woman in Gaza as she reflects on what she's lost since Israel went to war against Hamas. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. I'm Robin Young. Some states are jailing parents, usually single moms juggling doctor appointments and transportation, whose kids miss too much school. The parents and the kids often are trying the best they can in the circumstances of their lives. Punishing them for that won't get them to school more. It'll just punish them for something that if they had any choice, they wouldn't be doing. The solutions for truancy next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. It'll be overcast today. There's a chance of rain this morning, and it may mix with a little freezing rain before tapering off around mid-morning. Highs will be around 50. Cloudy tonight, and it'll fall to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, highs in the low 40s, with a good chance of rain starting in the early morning and lasting through mid-afternoon. It's 49 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one, and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Martinez. And I'm Lauren Caspian. Lauren, thank you so much for jumping into a host morning edition at the last minute, really, with no time to prep for all the interviews you're about to do. Um, I hope we didn't ruin any fun plans you might have had for today. Uh, no. I say prep is the crutch of the unimaginative. <laughs> to be clear, everyone, Lauren Caspian is not a new Morning Edition host. Lauren Caspian is a character created by actor Zach Woods. If you've seen The Office or Silicon Valley, you have definitely seen Zach's work. His new comedy series is called In the Know, which is a parody of public radio. Zach, thank you for, <laughs> for playing along. Not, I'm covered in dog hair. You can't see me, but I'm, co- I'm wearing a cardigan covered in dog hair. No. My hair is disheveled. I was recently asleep. That I is apologize. the public radio uniform. Is that true? We all get handed a cardigan sweater <laughs> full of dog hair. They have dog hair at the door. To right just... when we start. 
So, okay, so tell us, who is Lauren Caspian? Lauren Caspian is the host of the third most popular NPR interview show. And he presides over a small office of producers and researchers and interns. It's a stop-motion animated show, so it's all puppets, but he interviews guests who are on video. Humans, alive humans. humans. Alive <laughs> humans who are not puppets and interacts with them and asks them questions. All right, so let's hear a clip from the show. Lauren here is uh, interacting with some of his colleagues in the office, and it starts with Barb, the co-executive producer of In the Know. That's Lauren's show. I also wanted to let everyone know that that homeless gentleman is still in the bathroom. Oh, Barb. Huh? That is hate speech. He is an unhoused person. Actually, the preferred term is person who is currently without housing. No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm really very empathetic to the man's situation. I volunteer at a homeless shelter. Uh, No, you volunteer at an unhoused shelter. A shelter for persons currently without housing. Well, it just feels very clunky. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it too inconvenient to treat vulnerable populations with respect? How dare you? I was using the term Inuit back in the 90s. I've been spelling women with a Y since before I could spell my name. So meanwhile, there's a person in the bathroom that actually could need some help. That's right. Uh, But all of you are ignoring that person. So what are we learning uh, about the characters here, Zach? I think language is actually really important. However, I think sometimes an obsession with language, as you pointed out, (laughs) can distract you from the more urgent, practical, real demands of a situation. And I am a classic offender of this, the kind of progressive hypocrisy. Like my my ideology does not match my credit card statements. I am so disappointing in so many ways. I mean, one of the things that was really like an early inspiration for the show is I was walking around Larchmont, which is this kind of Tony neighborhood in Los Angeles. Very hip place. Yes, yes. And there's this house probably cost $4 million. And in the front lawn was a sign that said, defund the police. And then right next to that sign was an ADT home security decal that mentioned that they had armed guards who patrolled the neighborhood. And I was just like, this is perfect. It's like we want our our, our progressive bona fides, but also we want our mercenaries with guns going around the neighborhood. And I felt very smug and sanctimonious. And then I went and bought like a $15 lavender matcha that my immigrant ancestors would probably kill me for purchasing. I saw that Lauren Caspian, you mentioned the third most popular show, but he's also the third most popular host, right? That's right. Okay. So I really identify with that because I feel that I am the fifth most popular host on Morning Edition. It has four hosts. Uh, in no particular order, Layla Fadel, Michelle Martin, and Steve Inskeep. Then anyone that can fill in for me, and then I'm the fifth position. You feel that the substitute teachers are more popular yes, than I've you. Yes, I've always felt that way. I refuse to co-sign on this narrative, but also, if that is how you feel, then I think we might need to Tanya Harding some of these people. <laughs> All right, Steve Inskeep, he's coming. You know, Zach's coming after you, after you Steve, Steve Inskeep. Inskeep, if you get a lozenge that does a little vocal damage, you'll know from whence it came. So, okay, I, I've worked in public radio for a few years now. Yeah. What about public radio seems funny to you? I think the kind of tempest in a teacup part of it is funny to me. Like, I've had friends who are professors. Please hold your applause. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) they've told me that, like, these little liberal arts schools in the middle of nowhere, it's like Game of Thrones with the backstabbing and the inner office politics. So something about the kind of gentle, small environment married with the ambition and competitiveness made me laugh. And then also it was just a kind of framing device to make fun of people like me. How much fun was it to do this? Because public radio can be a very serious place. But I mean, I can imagine that you must have been laughing all all the time while you're doing this. Yeah, it was really fun. And one thing, one big part of the show is that 
Lauren Caspian, the puppet, interviews real live guests. And the guests were so game and playful. Like to ask someone, hey, will you go on a show that you cannot watch, has never existed before, you're going to be interviewed by a narcissistic, fictional, stop-motion NPR host. It's kind of a big ask. And they were so funny. What were they looking at? They were just looking at a still photo of Lauren. Okay. Hugh Laurie, welcome to In the Know. Thank you, Lauren. It's a great pleasure to be here. Hugh, what should we do about Meghan Markle? I, I, I don't know that any action is required. Part of why we wanted to make it stop motion was, A, because if you're going to make a show about people who are precious and delicate and controlled by forces beyond their own awareness, puppets are the appropriate medium. But also because I think there's something disarming about talking to a puppet. It just feels less like you're going to get in trouble or, you know, have to be on your best behavior. It's so ridiculous and weird that I think people would open up more. Now, I I don't know how your show in the know is yes. going to be processed when it fin- when people at NPR <laughs> finally get to like start watching it. I mean, you know, N- neither do I. Some NPR types might squirm. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, <laughs> it would be the great honor of my life if I could have like a war, if I could be beefing with NPR. I mean, don't get me wrong, I rely on you guys. I listen to you constantly and have imported large parts of my identity from NPR. But if we could have a kind of ongoing war where they hate me and I think that would be thrilling and make me feel alive for the first time in a long time. That's Zach Woods. He plays Lauren Caspian, NPR's third most popular host on a new series called In the Know that's now streaming on Peacock. Zach, uh, Lauren, whichever whichever I'm talking to right now, thank you and congratulations. Unfortunately, I often can't tell the difference either. So thank you for having me from Zach and Lauren. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, how a group of Vermont lawmakers are trying to make big oil companies pay for the damages caused by climate change. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Trouble in Mind, Alice Childress's moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes of 1950s Broadway, lyricstage.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The focus of the Republican presidential campaign is shifting to February's South Carolina primary. It's the next major contest for former President Donald Trump and his one-time U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley. Trump is coming off wins in last week's Iowa caucuses and Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. NPR's Stephen Fowler says Haley is facing an uphill climb to defeat Trump in her home state of South Carolina, where she once served as governor. To get more delegates than Trump, you got to get more votes than Trump, and that's not looking likely. Haley couldn't win in New Hampshire, which has more independent-minded voters and moderates than other early states like, say, South Carolina. Haley's down in the polls here, could lose her home state to Trump, and have less of an argument she's the viable alternative. Haley was campaigning in Charleston last night. A judge in Texas says trial will be held next month to examine the case of a black high school student and his hair. 
The Houston Area School District says Daryl George's hair length violates the school's dress code for boys. He's been barred from regular classes since late August. His mother, Deresha George, says she wants answers. Why? Like, really, why? His hair is not affecting his education. At issue in the trial will be a new state law that bans race-based discrimination related to hair. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new Dartmouth College study finds climate change is shrinking the snowpack in northern in the northern hemisphere. And as Mara Hoplomazian reports, the northeast is one of the places hit the hardest. Alex Gottlieb is a Ph.D. candidate at Dartmouth and was the lead author on the study. He says the new research shows the kind of snow loss observed in the past 40 years could only have happened with human activity warming the climate. Gottlieb says snow is especially at risk in places like New Hampshire. As we warm, and particularly in a place like this where so many of our winter storms come when we're hovering right around that freezing point, we're just increasingly loading the dice for these storms to be dropping rain instead of snow. The study focused on river basins that are losing snow, which could help water management professionals make better decisions. But the researchers said how less snow could affect water availability year-round in New England needs more study. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplomazian. There are some $450 million in cuts in Governor Maura Healey's latest budget proposal. That includes a $2.5 million reduction to the early education program Head Start. Michelle Hamowitz is executive director of the Massachusetts Head Start Association. She says the change will cause undue harm for the state's most vulnerable families. This could mean wage cuts for underpaid Head Start staff. It could mean that staff that would otherwise be hired, that those hires be put on hold, and those classrooms continue to, to go dark without teachers that need to provide care and the families that need to access that care. Hamowitz says she plans to work with the legislature to try and get the funding restored. Head Start provides services to about 11,000 children statewide. The head of the Anti-Defamation League of New England is resigning. Rabbi Jonah Steinberg is stepping down after leading the organization for less than a year. His announcement comes as the organization reports months of increasing anti-Semitic incidents. An ADL spokesperson tells the Boston Globe Steinberg is stepping down to focus on rabbinical and academic work. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins lost last night 3-2 to the Carolina Hurricanes. They skate again tonight at 7 against Ottawa. And Boston's women pro hockey team beat Ottawa last night in a last-minute thriller. The team scored the winning goal with less than a minute left on the clock. The top-ranked Celtics face the Miami Heat on the road tonight at 7.30. There's a chance of rain for another few hours this morning, and it may mix with a little freezing rain, then cloudy today with highs around 50. Temperatures fall to the upper 30s tonight, and it'll be overcast. More showers start early tomorrow morning and likely last through mid-afternoon. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 49 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium 
a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Gaza looks nothing like it did on October 7th when Hamas fighters attacked southern Israel, killing more than 1,200 people and taking hostages. Since then, Israel's military response has killed more than 25,000 people, according to Gaza health officials. And the U.N. says millions have been displaced. NPR's Aya Batrawi has this report on what one woman has lost. Tahrir Taysir al-Madani sits in a tent in the southern Tal al-Sultan area of Gaza. But al-Madani's tent isn't quite like the others. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, describes how the tent catches his eye. Very yellow color. The walls are garnished with some flowers. You can smell a very nice smell here. It's a perfume, a women perfume. Al-Madani's fragrant, yellow, flower-garnished tent reflects her personality and her attention to detail, even in war. She's a makeup artist and licensed esthetician. Her specialties include laser, hydrofacial, tattoo, micro. In the beauty world, that means she was your go-to gal in Gaza for skin rejuvenation and that perfect brow. The 34-year-old explains what her days looked like before the war. For months, I would leave the house at 8 a.m. and come back at 11 p.m., working and taking courses and giving courses. My whole life was like that. Al-Madani had taken out a loan to open her own beauty salon in Nusayrat in central Gaza. It was just 22 days shy of its grand opening. Israeli airstrikes have reduced much of Nusayrat, like other parts of Gaza, to rubble. Like countless others in Gaza, she says all of her effort and time went into building a dream that's now gone. But if you ask me what hurts most, you'll be surprised when I tell you. It's my bedroom. Her bedroom. It was perfect, she says. She says she'd come home after a long, exhausting day of work and throw herself on her bed. Al-Madani recalls every detail of that room in her family's multi-story home. It's pink hues. The cabinet, the mirror, the sofa, the designs of trees on the rug. As an esthetician, she had a table full of products of creams and face wash. She left it all behind, her certificates and licenses and her laptop where she kept her family photos. She's just one of two million people in Gaza who fled their homes during the war and haven't been back since. Al-Madani tells NPR's producer Anas Baba that after her divorce, her room in her parents' house became her private sanctuary. Privacy is now a luxury in Gaza that no one has. More than half of Gaza's population are living in overcrowded UN-run schools. Others are living with extended family in cramped apartments or on the streets and in tents like Al-Madani. It's really hard, she says, to even talk about how she only showers every few days at the hospital when she takes her mom in for dialysis. She tries to buy the best shampoo she can find to wash her hair with. Other times, she's using bottled water and face wash. Except, she says, we just fool ourselves by calling it face wash. It's not really. And it's at the hospitals where she's sheltered and showered 
that she's met women who, like her, are still trying to maintain their sense of identity and femininity. When I go to hospitals, women would say, two, three shekels, just do it for me, please. What self-care is that? She's talking here about women asking her if she can pluck here and there for less than a dollar. She still can't believe she's living in a tent atop a patch of sand, that this is her life now. Al-Madani is trying to stay recognizable to the woman she once was before this war. A woman who ate out at restaurants, relished her morning coffee, had a skincare routine, and a warm bed. I know we're in a war, and I'm still going. There are things I could buy, but I know the situation I'm in. I looked everywhere to buy a small mirror to keep it here with me. Here, these are my things. At the end of their conversation, she tells my colleague in Gaza, I asked if you have a packet of Nescafe, and you told me you do. So I agreed to talk, she says, half-jokingly. Instant coffee, a morning ritual in a life that no longer exists in Gaza. Aya Batraoui, NPR News, Tel Aviv, with producer Anas Baba in Gaza. Global warming can sometimes feel too big, too serious, or too distant. But some experts believe the way we talk about the changing climate can change attitudes. Here's NPR's Paige Waterhouse. Susan Joy Hassel is a self-proclaimed climate communicator. Some people say I'm like a simultaneous translator, science in, English out. I translate lots of complex things into things that are relatively simple. Hassel heads the nonprofit Climate Communication, She says the project's research and programs make climate news accessible for everyone, from kids to lawmakers. After more than three decades of working in this field, Hassel has observed a general lack of public concern when it comes to global warming. For most people, it's not really touching them. Ed Maybach directs the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University. Twice a year, the center partners with researchers at Yale to survey a representative group of Americans. They've been tracking public awareness on climate issues since 2008. Their findings indicate that the majority of Americans are aware of climate change. They just don't see it as an urgent issue. When we started these surveys, the majority of people saw climate change as a future problem. Now, the single largest group, the alarmed, they see it as a clear and present problem. But they are about 3 out of 10 Americans, which means that 7 out of 10 Americans still either see climate change primarily as a future problem or about 2 out of 10 dispute whether or not it's happening. Hassel has observed that the way we talk about climate change directly impacts public response. It's hard to communicate urgency because they're not thinking at the planetary level. They're thinking at the level of their family and their community. She believes the key is to relate big climate issues to how they're directly affecting individual communities. That's what everybody wants, right? Clean air, clean water. Protecting my community is better than save the planet protecting and conserving for our children and for future generations. But in order to really get through to people, Maybach says experts and journalists need to effectively translate the facts. Together, they really can work to help Americans better understand the realities of climate change and focus more clearly on decisions that we need to start making now in order to reduce the risk of harm from climate change. 
Maybach sees it as the greatest public health threat facing humanity, but says he's determined to do something about climate change because it's not too late. Paige Waterhouse, NPR News. This is NPR News. Governor Maura Healey has proposed a new $58 billion annual budget. Its 3% increase includes new investments in transportation, higher education, and pre-K. We'll take you through the details today on 90.9 WBUR. Keep listening. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll look at how Nikki Haley is approaching her campaign in her home state of South Carolina ahead of the primary there on February 24th. Despite being the former governor, she's still polling far behind Donald Trump in the state. A chance of rain, possibly mixed with freezing rain for another few hours, then cloudy and around 50 today. Tonight, upper 30s and cloudy. Tomorrow, low 40s with a good chance of more showers through about mid-afternoon. It's 49 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, the Kraft Foundation plans to run its first-ever Super Bowl ad this year. The 30-second ad will run as part of its Stand Up to Jewish Hate campaign. Over the past three months, anti-Semitic incidents have risen 400 percent. The Kraft Foundation says it hopes the ad will inspire people to stand up against hate. A longtime leader of the Girl Scouts of Eastern Massachusetts plans to step down. CEO Barbara Fortier will retire in June. Fortier has been with the Girl Scouts for 23 years. The group says it plans to start a search for her replacement. FIFA plans to be more flexible with its rules for cities that will host matches as part of the 2026 World Cup. Boston is one of those cities. FIFA tells the Sports Business Journal its rules for sponsors, fan zones, and public viewing of matches will be more flexible than originally planned. The changes come after host cities protested FIFA's planning restrictions, saying they don't make sense for every city. It's 745. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go, and Arts Thursdays at Harvard. Back with free public arts events every Thursday night starting January 25th, harvard.edu slash artsthursdays. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. In Vermont, a group of lawmakers is looking at a new way to make big oil companies pay for the damages caused by climate change. Their plan is modeled after the federal Superfund program, which collects fees to clean up hazardous waste. Massachusetts lawmakers are eyeing similar legislation. Abigail Giles reports from Vermont. State officials estimate that July's historic flooding will cost taxpayers north of $1 billion in property damages. And that's just one storm. As climate change brings more supercharged storms to Vermont, the costs are only going to rack up. But let's be clear. Vulnerable Vermonters, mom-and-pop businesses, and small cities and towns aren't the cause of this damage. Senator Ann Watson is a Democrat who represents Montpelier and Barrie and is a lead sponsor of the Climate Superfund Act. Big Oil knew decades ago that their products would cause this damage. So it is only right that they pay a share of the cost to clean up this mess. Under the bill, Vermont would mimic a federal program 
that makes big companies pay to clean up the toxic waste they made while doing business. The EPA's Superfund program has been used to clean up catastrophic pollution at mines and old abandoned factories. Vermont's bill would do the same thing, but for climate damages. Companies would have to pay a share of what climate change has cost Vermont, based on how much that company contributed to the problem globally. Anthony Irapino is a lawyer and lobbyist for Conservation Law Foundation, an environmental advocacy group. It's essentially taking that model that's well established in the hazardous waste context and adapting that to the latest and most pressing environmental crisis we all face, which is climate change. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has introduced a similar bill at the federal level, though Irapino says it's unlikely to pass. Maryland, New York, and Massachusetts have also introduced climate superfund bills. Patrick Parento is a professor at Vermont Law School who used to litigate superfund cases for the EPA's New England office. It's a good idea, but like a lot of good ideas, it's the execution and the, and the implementation of a law like this that gets complicated. Parento says the stickiest part of the federal Superfund program is actually getting big polluters to pay up and part with their money. These are big legal battles that can take years to resolve in the courts. Part of the challenge, he says, will be building an airtight accounting of the damages caused by burning fossil fuels and the investments Vermont needs to adapt to a warming climate. That's going to be up to the state treasurer. New York State has already tallied this figure, estimating that a Adapting to climate change could cost the state more than $150 billion by 2050. And the bill's proponents here say Vermont could borrow from New York's work, which leans on science to say this storm that caused X damage was this much more powerful because of climate change. It's called extreme event attribution. And for a lot of the extreme weather events Vermont is likely to see more of, scientists can do this work with growing accuracy. Treasurer Mike Pichek says he's excited about the task. You know, at the end of the day, Vermont is going to have a lot of money due because of climate change. And the question is kind of who is going to pay for that. Pichek says the cost shouldn't fall solely on Vermonters. And he thinks his office can build a case that's so airtight it will stand up to litigation. Parento with Vermont Law says they'll have to. Again, the companies just aren't going to cave in. They're going to fight like hell and say, we're not liable. You can't make us liable. This is a global problem. It requires a global solution. You could sue us and put us out of business and it wouldn't fix the climate problem. In an emailed statement, a spokesperson for the American Petroleum Institute, which represents U.S. oil and natural gas companies, called the proposal, quote, likely unconstitutional and a punitive tax. The Climate Superfund Act has more than 100 sponsors in the Vermont legislature, including a supermajority in the Senate, which has tended to be more conservative this biennium than the House on climate issues. Senator Dick Sears is a Democrat from Bennington County who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, where the bill is now. He's been talking to small businesses that still haven't received federal aid. And he says a decade ago, he might not have supported legislation like this. But seeing how the plastics manufacturer St. Gobain was made to pay for carbon filters in homes whose drinking water was contaminated with toxic PFOA chemicals in his district changed his mind. I, mean, I, I don't know where else the victim pays. Um, I've dealt with criminal justice laws and judiciary for years, and everywhere it's the victim's 
the victim is not the one that's responsible to pay. It's the offender. And here, some for some reason, with these major companies, they aren't required to pay the victim. Governor Phil Scott has yet to weigh in. But even if he vetoes the bill, it's likely lawmakers could mount an override. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Abigail Childs. It's a Thursday on WBUR, coming up at 820 here on Morning Edition, riding a wave of popularity of Korean cultural exports. High-end Korean eateries from Seoul to New York are winning acclaim. It's 751. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at wbur.org legacy. The war in Gaza is having an impact on Israel's universities, creating new tensions on campus between students and teachers. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Former Spanish soccer president Luis Rubiales will face trial for kissing a female soccer player without her consent at the Women's World Cup. Today, Alabama will attempt to become the first state to put an inmate to death using nitrogen gas. And in Massachusetts, schools are closed again today in Newton as a teacher strike there heads for a fifth day. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. As the 2024 election season gets into full swing, some voters under the age of 30 say they're disillusioned with politics and plan to sit out the election. We wanted to hear more about this. So first we ask listeners what issues they're most concerned about, and here are some of the responses we got. I'm trying to pay my loans off, but... It's insurmountable. Lowering the taxes, reducing the regulations, doing a lot more manufacturing in America, that would be the best thing for the economy. What about ensuring that there's a planet to leave behind? I want to see stricter gun control. I want to see banning of assault rifles. That's 24-year-old Katie Yao in Skokie, Illinois. 26-year-old Jonathan Bohr in Chicago, Illinois. 20-year-old Izzy Kagan in Bronxville, New York. And 27-year-old Sarah McCall in Washington, D.C. Now, voters under 30 tend left of center overall, and they made a big difference for Democrats in the 2022 midterms. But it's unclear if they'll turn out in strong enough numbers to get President Biden reelected. So to better understand what's going on with young voters, our colleague Leila Fano spoke with Kay Kawashima Ginsburg. She is the Director for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts University. So young people have always cared deeply about social issues, but this election and before this too have actually cared more about economy, jobs, affordable living, living wage, paying jobs being available to them. How much of an issue is Gaza? I know that a lot of young voters have told us they care about it. There's a lot of concern. What does your research say about how much this is going to impact young voters at the polls? 
So young people are diverse in both their opinions, how politically engaged they are today, and in relation to the Israeli-Palestine issues. So what we know from research is that it is really too early to tell exactly how young people would respond, whether by not voting, voting in certain directions and parties, or opposing certain parties and candidates. What we are hearing, though we did not exactly ask this question in the survey we fielded in late last year, is that young people, about 30-35%, are still deciding whom to vote for. We said an enthusiasm among young voters in 2022 in the midterms in which we saw Democrats turn some of those seats. But we're also anecdotally hearing some disillusionment with Biden, some disappointment, and young people saying they're not going to vote for Biden on principle, even if his competitor is worse in their view. Is this something that your research is showing? Young people have been not as enthusiastic supporters of the Biden administration before President Biden was elected. So what's different about Gen Z generation in particular, who's known to be politically active, also very diverse and caring about a variety of social issues, is that when they're disappointed in what the government is doing or when the leaders are showing them, they're willing to take the issue in their own hand and try to intervene, try to get involved Um, sometimes by speaking up by their vote. But by and large, they have voted more than other generations have as youth, regardless of how disappointed they say they are in the government. So if the past couple elections trends hold, young people have been disappointed in the government and the elected leaders, but they voted. Is there a candidate that young people are turning toward? What we know from research is that young people do support issue, first and foremost, and do not necessarily show sort of a... Party loyalty? Yeah, correct. So young people really want to hear from candidates who understand where they are in life and understand how they would support their priorities. Economy, housing, cost of living is one of the top issues. But another issue that is not considered social issues per se, but large on young people's mind is mental health issues. Almost half of young people named mental health challenges being part of their daily living. So understanding where young people are as one of the generations that's politically active on one hand, but also struggling mightily with mental health issues and economy is really important point to understand beyond social and controversial issues. Young people are like everybody else. They're trying to get through each day. And I think candidates who can be on their level and understanding how to listen to them is really, really going to win their support. But what young voters did do in 2022 is show that they do have power at the polls through the participation they gave. It was seen as a major reason that Democrats won in battleground states. Are candidates respecting the vote of young people like they should now? You know, I think many young people would say they're not respected enough. We hear that in some surveys, too, where young people are really starting to and have always, to a certain extent, doubted how effective their votes will be, how much they would respond when they elect leaders they think will have their priorities. And I think it continues to be important that the elected leaders show that they heard their priorities in conversation with young people so that they can come to an agreement or at least a solution that both parties can say, 
This is one step forward. There's no perfect solution for many issues that young people care about, and there are limits to what governments can do. But what young people have shown is that they are willing to give government and elected leaders a chance by coming out to vote. But if they continue to feel disrespected and unheard, they could, in fact, show that they really need to have that respect by not voting. That's Kei Kawashima Ginsburg. She's the Newhouse Director of the Circle Center at Tufts University. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. You're welcome. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, our friends from Planet Money are bringing us a story about the rise of BYD, the Chinese company that is the world's number one producer of electric cars. And you know, A, what's interesting about this company is that it started as a battery maker. Battery maker. So I wonder if they just kept on making batteries and then just built their car around it. I mean, it would make sense, right? That's what I would do if I was running Well, see, this is why you need to listen to the story tomorrow. Okay, so the big question now is whether BYD will be able to crack the U.S. market. If you want to hear the story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or on your radio. What are you going to do, A? Oh, radio. Radio. We're all radio people. 100%. Got to listen to radio. Got to. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Federal regulators approve an inspection process that could clear the way for grounded Boeing planes to fly again. It's Thursday, January 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Alabama is set to become the first state to execute an inmate using nitrogen gas. Also this hour. Music says we have to stop and we have to do something. The government and the world, I hope, will help. A mother in Israel is holding concerts in honor of her son, who was taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. Plus, a new study finds housing is now unaffordable for a record half of all U.S. renters. And for the first time, gene therapy is showing promise for treating inherited deafness. Cloudy today in the upper 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Federal Aviation Administration says grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets can fly again after a thorough inspection. NPR's Joel Rose reports 171 planes have been grounded since a fuselage panel blew off in flight nearly three weeks ago. The FAA laid out the final inspection process for the grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets clearing the way for the planes to return to service after what the agency called thorough inspections and maintenance. But FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker says this will not be a return to business as usual for Boeing. 
The FAA says it's imposing sweeping production restrictions at the company's factories until regulators are satisfied that, quote, the quality control issues uncovered during this process are resolved, unquote. Critics say Boeing has been rushing production to clear a lengthy backlog of orders. Boeing says its planes are safe and that it will work with regulators and airlines to get the grounded jets back in the air. Joel Rose, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump is warning people who support his rival, Nikki Haley, not to donate to her presidential campaign. He wrote online the donors would be barred from his MAGA campaign if they do so. Meanwhile, Haley had a lot of criticism for Trump over his victory remarks this week in New Hampshire. He didn't talk about the American people once. He talked about revenge. He didn't talk about the fact that we've got an economy in shambles and an inflation that's un- out of control. Haley lost to Trump in New Hampshire this week and in Iowa last week. She says she is staying in the presidential contest. The next contests are in Nevada and in her home state, South Carolina, where Haley served as governor. Florida's highest court will weigh in on the constitutionality of the state's removal of a congressional district. It gave black voters the ability to elect their preferred candidate. From member station WFSU, Valerie Crowder reports any changes to the map probably won't happen in time for this year's elections. Governor Ron DeSantis proposed and signed the map into law nearly two years ago. A state appeals court upheld the map last year, prompting voting rights groups to appeal the case to the Florida Supreme Court. They argue the removal of North Florida's only black opportunity district violates the state constitution, which bans diminishing a minority group's ability to elect their candidate of choice. Attorneys for the state had argued against the state Supreme Court taking up the case, but the court has rejected that request and ordered all parties to spend the next few months preparing for oral arguments, which will be set at a later date. For NPR News, I'm Valerie Crowder in Tallahassee. Florida is one of more than a dozen U.S. states where redistricting challenges have been taken to court. You're listening to NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Newton teachers continue their strike today. This is the fifth day of canceled classes for students in the district. Members of the Newton Teachers Association say they've made progress in contract negotiation, but there's still no deal. Teachers and city leaders are at odds over school funding. A Newton parent group has called on both sides to work to come to an agreement. Governor Maura Healy's proposed $58 billion state budget includes large investments in the MBTA. The plan allocates $350 million for the beleaguered transit agency's operations and low-income fares. WBWARS Ninjor Enwemeka reports. $45 million of the proposed T funding would go towards supporting reduced fares for low-income riders. And $314 million would be directed to the MBTA's operations. Jared Johnson, the executive director of Transit Matters, says the plan addresses many critical needs. I think the fact that we have this investment in the T's operating budget is really critical and I think is going to help the T avoid having to make really tough choices about service cuts or fare hikes. Johnson says there's still a need to figure out ongoing sources of revenue and funding for the T. Healy's budget proposal now goes to the legislature. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. 
Governor Maura Healy's proposed budget is getting pushback from advocates for personal care attendants. Healy wants to keep spending flat for MassHealth's personal care attendant program. Becca Gutman is vice president of home care for 1199 SEIU. She says one part of the budget would cap hours authorized for meal preparation. One of the amazing things about this program is it allows people with disabilities and elders to live with real dignity and independence. But if you're limiting the number of hours that people have, like the support hours they have to prepare meals, what does that mean in terms of the quality of meals? Gutman says they're very concerned that this will also mean cuts to the number of people who can get the care that they need. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. The Celtics face the Miami Heat in Florida at 7.30 tonight. The Bruins take the ice in Canada against the Ottawa Senators. Their game comes after a disappointing loss last night against the Carolina Hurricanes, snapping a five-game winning streak. A slight chance of rain through about mid-morning, otherwise cloudy today with high temperatures around 50. Cloudy in upper 30s tonight with more rain likely beginning early tomorrow morning. The showers may last through about mid-afternoon. We'll have a high in the low 40s. It's 40. 49 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Nikki Haley is vowing to keep campaigning despite her second place finish in the New Hampshire presidential primary. Listen, we've only had two states that have voted. We got 48 more that deserve to vote. One of those states is South Carolina, where Haley served for six years as governor. It's also where she's focusing her campaign's energy ahead of that state's primary next month, starting with a rally in Charleston last night. NPR Stephen Fowler joins us now from Charleston, South Carolina. Stephen Haley finished third in Iowa, second in New Hampshire, and is the last major candidate left other than Donald Trump. So what's her argument for staying in the race? Well, Trump's got this stranglehold on the conservative base of the GOP, but since he first took office in 2016, that hasn't really been enough for the party to win many key races. Haley's still got the same conservative stances as Trump, but her rhetoric and record appeals to more independent voters in a general election. I spoke with Marie Barber from Mount Pleasant at the rally, who says she has friends and family that won't vote for Joe Biden, but won't vote for Trump either. Trump is kind of a tough sell to a lot of more moderate conservatives because he can be very abrasive. But if he were the nominee, I think he would get the job done. I just feel like Nikki would do it with a lot more style and class. And A, that's Nikki Haley's pitch in a nutshell. I'll also note that Barber said she'll vote for Trump if he's the nominee. Yeah, and Haley has also said that she'd vote for Trump if he's a nominee. Okay, but so if the difference is between Trump and Haley is style over substance, I mean, how's that playing out within the Republican Party? Well, once again, most of the party's leaders rally around Trump, including numerous South Carolina politicians like Senator Tim Scott, who, by the way, was appointed to that seat by Nikki Haley. 
Trump's also lined up most of his presidential challengers that have dropped out, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who just last week said Trump would have problems facing Joe Biden in November. Then he dropped out and endorsed Trump. Now, Haley's new stump speech focused on her record as governor, touting everything from the economy to criminal justice reform. She also knocked Trump for his mental lapses, like a recent rally where he confused her with Democrat Nancy Pelosi. But it's not clear that message is getting through. Here's voter Sarah Farillo, who said she doesn't really know what Haley can do to improve her standing with other Republicans. Because right now they're responding to the loudest person in the room, right? How can you be the loudest without being the bad publicity? She also said she'd vote for Trump if he's the nominee. So then what does a path forward for Nikki Haley look like? I mean, is there a mathematical or maybe a practical way that maybe she could outlast Trump over the next few months? Well, A, in many ways, the math ain't mathin'. I mean, to get the Republican nomination, you need more delegates. To get more delegates than Trump, you gotta get more votes than Trump, and that's not looking likely. I mean, Haley couldn't win in New Hampshire, which has more independent-minded voters and moderates than other early states like, say, South Carolina. Haley's down in the polls here, could lose her home state to Trump, and have less of an argument she's the viable alternative. A final complication, the next major contest is actually Nevada, where Trump has basically already won, that's because he's the only candidate in the party-run caucus, the only contest awarding those all-important delegates. That puts even more pressure on Haley to perform in South Carolina. All right, that's NPR Stephen Fowler in Charleston. Stephen, thanks. Thank you. Yesterday was a good news, bad news day for aircraft maker Boeing. The Federal Aviation Administration has approved an inspection and maintenance plan that paves the way for grounded 737 MAX 9 jets to return to service. But the agency also announced yesterday that it would increase scrutiny of Boeing's manufacturing and quality control. The announcement comes after a door plug panel blew off one of its planes minutes into a flight earlier this month. The CEO of Alaska Airlines revealed just this week that the carrier had found, quote, loose bolts, unquote, on many of its Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft. For more on what this means for the aviation industry and for passengers, I'm joined by Kathleen Banks. She is an aviation safety analyst and a former commercial pilot. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Michelle. So the FAA says it will not allow Boeing to expand production of the 737 MAX 8 and 9 planes, as well as the upcoming smaller MAX 7 and the larger MAX 10 variants. And it says it's going to investigate its manufacturing practices. Have you ever seen this kind of action from the FAA before? Well, I'd have, then that's a good question. We'd have to go back and look and go way back into history. Um, you know, it is funny. There's there's other models that have come out. You can go back even to the early 1960s, like the Boeing 727, which had a fantastic safety record. But when it first came out, it had uh, two or three high-profile fatal accidents right away. Hmm. But actually, it was due to pilot error. So, um, you know, we've seen things similar to this uh, before. But what it really means right now for Boeing is they're putting out maybe 30 to maybe three dozen uh, max jets a month is what they've been trying to do. And they want to up production in the next year or two to 50 or even 55. And then, as you mentioned, get that Dash 7 and the Dash 7 certified. And right now, uh, basically what the FAA is, is said is slow down. 
we want to slow down. You're not going to expand uh, the production line right now. And obviously, that's going to hurt Boeing's bottom line. I just have a couple questions about some of the things that you uh, told us. So I'm going to see if I can kind of take them point by point. So, you know, the door plug, then loose bolts. And then just last weekend, I understand that a nose wheel fell off a plane as it was about to take off in Atlanta. Do these recent problems suggest something to you? Well, there's definitely a uh, quality control culture problem at Boeing. Now, that nose wheel coming off that 757, no, uh, that was a Delta jet, and that's a 757, and that plane came off the assembly line probably uh, you know, over two decades ago. Mm-hmm. But yes, have we seen the, this this culture issue at Boeing shift um, you know, more than two decades now from what I guess people would classically say is from a very engineering-focused company uh, to a more financial focused company. And what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, to some extent, Boeing is too big to fail and its commercial jets uh, are, are not really what keep it in business. Uh, they bring in more revenue from you and me and everyone else in the form of U.S. taxpayers, as the U.S. government is pretty much its largest customer right now. So that so you've given us a couple things to think about, but and you did mention that this earlier aircraft, you know, where pilot error was a factor. Okay, so Boeing builds the planes, but airlines fly them, and the federal government is supposed to, what, just make sure that standards are adhered to. So I guess I'm wondering if you could apportion responsibility, how would you apportion it? Well, what I think is I'm very happy to see is uh, Alaska Airlines and United Airlines CEOs this week have been very verbal about their disappointment in in what is happening and their uh, desire to get more involved to put their own people um, in the production, you know, lines and oversee that. And so I think that's definitely uh, a step in the right direction. What we're going to see this week, uh, starting as early as Friday, is the FAA has now said, okay, we have an inspection and maintenance process that we want you to follow to get these jets back in the air. And starting this, you know, like I said, as early as Friday, we could see Alaska Airlines start flying them again. And by Saturday, possibly uh, United will have the MAX 9 flying As again. briefly as you can, what can you do as a consumer? If you're worried about this. If the consumer has issues and at this point feels this jet is not proven to them, they can go on any flight tracker or any uh, airline um, website and app, look in the details section and find out exactly what that model is if at this point they're still uncomfortable flying on the MAX jet. That is Kathleen Banks. She's a former commercial airline pilot and an aviation safety analyst. Kathleen Banks, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Spiking rents have caused a lot of pain for people the last few years. Now, a new study finds housing is unaffordable for half of all renters. That is a record high. And even a softening market won't be much help for many. Here's NPR's Jennifer Ludden. Over the past two years, Genuine Campbell was shocked at how rent for her two-bedroom apartment in Philadelphia just kept going up from $1,300 a month to $1,600. She's a single mom of four, and while this was happening, her hours as a hotel valet were getting cut. Add in utility costs plus inflation, and every month was a wrenching decision. All right, do you want to pay the bills and then give half the rent, or do you want to try to do the whole rent and then be back on bills? It's so hard. It's so hard. Campbell says the area is not even safe enough for her kids to play outside, but the rents are way out of line with what she can make. These jobs are not paying that much. You have to work at like maybe a hospital or police officer or something, you know, well over just to keep up with the rent. 
In fact, a newly released study from Harvard University finds more such households and lots of others also struggle to pay rent, even when people are working full-time. We actually saw increases across every single income category that we look at, which sort of surprised us. Whitney Ergood O'Bricky is with Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. She says in 2022, a record half of all renters paid more than 30 percent of their income for rent and utilities. For a large chunk, it was more than 50 percent. Middle-income renters were hit especially hard. These days, she says, traditional trade-offs are no guarantee of cheaper rent. So you might not be living in as good of a neighborhood. You might be commuting farther. You might be sacrificing the quality of your school system to try to live in affordable housing. And still, many can't afford where they live. Ergood Obricki says for a quarter of all renters, 600 a month is the most they can comfortably spend. But in the past decade, the U.S. has lost millions of cheaper places, including over half a million just since 2019. There is a lot of badly needed new construction, but those apartments are mostly at the high end. That's not going to help people like Genuine Campbell, who made a change this month. It was just too much. So I was like, all right, well, maybe I need to just start fresh new year. Her family has moved in with friends, and she's making a bit more as a driver with Lyft. She's also started looking for a cheaper place with a rent of 1000 to 1100 a month. Like a, you're dreaming of a fairy tale, but I'm going to try to find something that I can handle and I can manage. She hopes that dream is not impossible. Jennifer Lutton, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that Maine's top court has declined to weigh in on whether former President Donald Trump can stay on the state's ballot. That means a lower court judge's decision stands that the U.S. Supreme Court will need to resolve the matter. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Alabama is set to become the first state to execute an inmate using nitrogen gas, a controversial method that has never been used in the U.S. before. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov and the Museum of Science. Visit iconic spots around the globe to see how people are adapting to a changing climate in changing landscapes through May 5th, mos.org. I'm Robin Young. Some states are jailing parents, usually single moms juggling doctor appointments and transportation, whose kids miss too much school. The parents and the kids often are trying the best they can in the circumstances of their lives. Punishing them for that won't get them to school more. It'll just punish them for something that if they had any choice, they wouldn't be doing. The solutions for truancy next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. It'll be overcast today. There's a slight chance of rain through about mid-morning. Highs will be around 50. Cloudy tonight, and it'll fall to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, highs in the low 40s with a good chance of rain starting in the early morning and lasting through mid-afternoon. It's 49 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. From the Wallace Foundation, 
working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering small ship experiences with a shore excursion included in every port and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Learn more at viking.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. It's hard to miss the impact of South Korean cultural exports these days, from music and literature to the movies and TV. That success is carrying over to another area. Korean food is now winning over palates worldwide, including in the world of fine dining. I don't know why I did not get this assignment, but NPR's Anthony Kuhn takes us to meet chefs and taste dishes in Seoul. Okay, guys, welcome back to our first lunch service of the week. Staff get pumped up for lunch at Evett in Seoul's trendy Gangnam district. The restaurant has been listed in the Michelin Guide since 2020 with one star for its high-quality cooking. Australian chef Joseph Lidgerwood is assembling some of his signature dishes. We have a sandy-colored block in front of us. Tell us what it is, Joseph. Amazing. So this is meiju. Meiju is essentially the building blocks of most Korean fermentation. From Meju come three of Korean cuisine's most basic ingredients, soy sauce, fermented soy paste, and chili paste. On top of the block is a ball, a donut with caramelized cream, anchovies, and black garlic. You can't eat the block, it's there to make you think. I'm not from Korea, but I have a love affair with Korean ingredients. And what we do here through this snack and through all the dishes here at Evett is present them in different ways to make people kind of look back at the past. Lidgerwood applies his creative, playful approach to the next dish, a traditional Korean black hat made of earthenware, filled with onions, radishes, and abalone, and topped with a perilla seed wafer. There's a wooden Korean window frame holding sweets, including a ginseng marshmallow and a sesame oil caramel. Many of the dishes at Evett are both sweet and salty. Many have a creamy consistency closer to European cuisine than Korean. Lidgerwood says he forages around South Korea a dozen or so times a year to gather local ingredients. Our cuisine revolves on fresh seasonal ingredients backboned by fermentation. So we have an amazing library of fermented stuff that we can pull and pick as we choose. In recent years, Korean food has carved out its own space in a global fine dining scene once dominated by French, Italian and Japanese eateries. In New York, two of 12 new Michelin stars awarded last year went to Korean restaurants. Chef Jonghyun Park is owner of the two Michelin-starred Atomics and three other Korean restaurants in New York. He says Korean chefs didn't suddenly burst onto the scene. They all started cooking around the early 2000s, like myself, and have trained as chefs for nearly 20 years, developing their own culinary skills. I think such efforts are now bearing fruit. He argues that Korean haute cuisine is not about adapting Korean cuisine to suit Western tastes. He says he just cooks what he thinks tastes good. I like cooking in New York because people there are very open to new cultures. They like accepting new things, so it's not like I have to change their tastes. Chef Cho Hee Suk is sometimes referred to as the godmother of Korean cuisine. She got her start in the 1980s when the only fine dining in South Korea was in hotels and chefs were considered a lowly profession. She says she focuses on how to adapt Korea's traditions to modern lifestyles. 
In Korea, meals were traditionally built around rice, with assorted side dishes called banchan. But more and more people are excluding rice from their table now and having what would have been banchan as standalone dishes. Korean cuisine is riding the wave of popularity of Korean cultural exports, from bands such as BTS and Blackpink to movies and dramas such as Parasite and Squid Game. South Korea's government and corporations are thinking of ways to promote Korean food and profit from it. Yang Ju Pil is an official at the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Our ultimate goal is to increase exposure of Korean food overseas, and through that, increase exports of Korean agricultural and food products. To do this, his ministry is finding ways to link Korean food to other facets of Korean culture. For example, we select about 10 food items each year for product placement in dramas. They also sell Korean food at K-pop concerts overseas. The Korean food conglomerate CJ, meanwhile, aims to sell more of its products overseas by cultivating rising young chefs like Evett's Joseph Lidgerwood. Back at Evett, Lidgerwood prepares a final course of grilled Korean beef, served with a puree of rice and fermented soybean paste. He admits not all his customers are starving for information about Korean food, and he says that's okay. My curiosity and my energy for Korean food is why I moved here. So it might seem like a lot of work for people who aren't as interested in meeting the cow and the farmer, but for us it's kind of a joy. So that's why we get up every morning. The culinary knowledge is, of course, not free. Lunch at Evett will set you back about $114 and dinner $190, not including wine. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. An iconic California roadside attraction has closed. Pea Soup Anderson's was a legendary landmark on the road between Southern California and Northern California. And it's kind of the place you always stopped. And even if you just kept on driving, you really couldn't miss the billboards for Pea Soup Anderson's along Highway 101. The place had a lot of lore. It had a lot of everything. I mean, it was a total themed environmental, experiential extravaganza. And I mean, these places are not really being built anymore. That's Charles Phoenix, a 20th century pop culture historian known as the ambassador of Americana. I love places that when you walk in the door, you have to ask yourself, what decade are we in? And it was like that. Going to Pea Soup Anderson's, you were in a time capsule. But the restaurant was starting to show its age. It opened up in 1924, and it's a 100-year-old building. And along with that comes, you know, a lot of issues. Krista Guja is with Milk Guja Enterprises. They bought the restaurant in the central California city of Yulton in 1999. We're selling the property. The new buyers, as far as what we know, will be redeveloping the property. Now, fans of the soup can still get their fix if they're willing to drive about four hours north to the other Pea Soup Anderson's location in Sananella, California. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, researchers say that for the first time, they've used gene therapy to successfully treat inherited deafness. It's 829. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Leslie University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at leslie.edu and AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Senate negotiators continue working on a bipartisan agreement to address security at the U.S. southern border. Republicans in Congress want President Biden's request for additional USA to Ukraine and funding for Israel contingent on changes to immigration policy and border funding. Some GOP senators say they're not optimistic about what's being put together. Here's Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah. I'm sure they are coming up with some provisions that might help certain things. But from what I'm hearing, this could cause as many problems as it solved. Senate negotiators are hoping to release their proposal within days. The Federal Aviation Administration says grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft can return to service once all inspections and maintenance have been completed. 171 of the jets were pulled from service after a door plug blew off an Alaska Airlines flight on January 5th. Kathleen Bangs is an aviation safety analyst and a former pilot. The FAA has now said, okay, we have an inspection and maintenance process that we want you to follow to get these jets back in the air. And starting as early as Friday, we could see Alaska Airlines start flying them again. And by Saturday, possibly uh, United will have the MAX 9. She was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state's largest health insurer is pausing a controversial policy to restrict the use of anesthesia during colonoscopies. Leaders with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts argued many patients could be examined while sedated but still awake. That drew criticism from doctors, including Dr. Lauren Blish. She's president of the Massachusetts Gerontology Association. It's caused a lot of confusion, a lot of angst. Some patients have decided to cancel or postpone their procedures. I think that with this policy being postponed indefinitely, as far as we know, our patients are breathing a sigh of relief. Blue Cross leaders now say there's too much confusion about the plan. They're vowing to give 90 days notice before making any other changes. Eighteen people faced charges related to a protest last week outside of a Raytheon facility in Tewksbury. Police say the group was at the defense contractor's site to speak out against the ongoing war in Gaza. Officials accused the 18 people of blocking traffic in the area. Some also face vandalism charges for allegedly defacing a sign on the property with red paint. New research finds that boat speed restrictions help save endangered whales. Human impacts are the leading cause of the declining population of the North Atlantic right whales. Researchers at the New England Aquarium say slowing down helps prevent serious injuries and deadly collisions. Federal regulators are considering making speed regulations on the East Coast more restrictive. There are fewer than 350 right whales left in the world. It's 8.33. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. The Bruins and Celtics both play tonight. The Bees take the ice in Canada against the Ottawa Senators. Their game comes after a disappointing loss last night against the Carolina Hurricanes, snapping a five-game winning streak. The Seas face the Miami Heat in Florida at 7.30 tonight. They then return home for a three-game homestand that begins Saturday against the Clippers. Cloudy today with highs around 50. There's a slight chance of rain for another few hours this morning. Temperatures fall to the upper 30s tonight, and it'll be overcast. More showers start early tomorrow morning and likely last through mid-afternoon. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at yptc.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Later today, Alabama is set to carry out an execution using nitrogen gas. That's a method that's never been used before in the U.S. But it will be the second time the state will try to execute Kenneth Smith, who survived an execution by lethal injection in 2022. Smith was convicted for his role in a 1988 murder-for-hire plot. NPR Investigations reporter Kiara Eisner has been covering the story and is in Atmore, Alabama. That's where the execution is scheduled to take place around 6 p.m. There's also been... A lot of debate over this as well there. Uh, Kira, does it still look like uh, it's going to happen today? It does. And there has been a lot of back and forth in Alabama courts. But yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court justices were given a chance to chime in as well. Kenneth Smith's lawyers asked them to consider pausing the execution so they could argue that executing Smith a second time violated his constitutional protection against cruel and unusual punishment. The U.S. Supreme Court justices denied that attempt. So as of now, the execution is still scheduled for later today. All right. Now, nitrogen as a form of execution. I mean, why are they using an untested method for this second attempt to execute Kenneth Smith? Well, back in 2022, Alabama had three high-profile botched executions when the state attempted to execute people with lethal injection. Each of those three times, Execution workers from Alabama were unable to quickly place the IV in the veins of the prisoners to deliver the drugs. The first time, they ended up actually executing the prisoner, but it took so long that the family is now suing the state. And those other two times, one of which was Smith's execution, the state had to call the executions off after those workers failed again and again to successfully get the needle in the prisoner's veins. After they left Smith on the gurney for four hours during his failed execution, he and his lawyers argued that the state should never use lethal injection on him again. And Alabama had passed a statute in 2018 that allowed for nitrogen hypoxia as a secondary method. So that was the alternative they had to fall back on. This nitrogen that we've been talking about, is it like laughing gas? Is that what we're talking about? 
No, that is nitrous oxide. This is pure nitrogen gas, which is not administered to humans in medical settings. And it's been deemed by vets to be, quote, unacceptable for the euthanization of mammals other than pigs because of its potential for causing distress to those animals. Oh, okay. Now, you've been reporting on this for a couple of months now. You've spoken to Smith and also his spiritual advisor. Uh, that spiritual advisor is going to be in the room with him later today. How are they feeling about how prepared the state of Alabama is to carry this out on a person? Yes. So I spoke with the spiritual advisor, Jeff Hood, yesterday, shortly after he saw Smith at the prison and met with the prison's warden. Here's what he told me. The warden came and took me back to the execution chamber. And I can tell you that what I saw did nothing to minimize my fears. They have proven time and time again that they don't know what they're doing. So I think we're heading into what could possibly be a catastrophe. Reverend Hood will be at the prison from 8.30 in the morning today until 6 p.m. when the execution is scheduled to take place. We'll be there, too, to report on what's happening outside and inside the prison during the execution. All right. That's uh, Kiara Eisner, a reporter with NPR's investigations team. Uh, Kiara, thank you very much uh, for bringing this. Thank you. It has now been more than three and a half months since Hamas fighters took hundreds of hostages as part of an attack on southern Israel that killed 1,200 people. More than 100 hostages have since been released, but the families of those who are still being held fear time is running out. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has the story about one mother's mission to keep hope alive. Musicians are sound checking in a small community center in Zikim, a kibbutz near the Gaza Strip. They're here to play for Alon Oel, a 22 year old who was taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. Music is a big part of his life. He moves through music. He actually moves physically through music. You can see when he moves, it's like he's listening to music all the time. Adit Oel is Alon's mother. Alone was supposed to be starting at one of Israel's best music academies. He was a fantastic piano player. He was taken in the early hours from the Nova Music Festival, just a few miles from where we're standing. Hamas militants killed hundreds at the festival. Adit says she's seen videos of Alon as he was taken hostage. She hasn't heard anything since. I know that he is alive. I know he's alive because he was taken alive, and I know he's alive because I'm a mother. Families of the more than 100 hostages that remain in Gaza are increasingly frustrated by what they see as a lack of progress in negotiations for their loved ones' release. They've set up encampments outside the residences of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in protest of the hostages' continued imprisonment. They have no more time. That's why we're doing this, because music says that we have to stop and we have to do something. The government and the world, I hope, will help. Playing are some of Alon's favorites, including Guy Mazik, an Israeli artist. He's singing about someone trying to help their child. He's in big trouble, and you're in a great hurry, and uh, you know, everything that comes along with this, uh, the, the sadness, the, the fear, the everything, all the range of emotions. 
Alon's father is here and his brother. Some soldiers show up. They heard from their base near the border. That's because this music isn't just playing in the community center. Outside, two strings of loudspeakers are suspended from a crane pointed towards Gaza. So the sound of the music is echoing out over the hills. And in the distance, there's smoke rising from Israeli bombardment of Gaza City. The concert wraps up. The truck with the speakers drives away. An Israeli fighter jet rumbles overhead. Back inside, I ask Edith Owell if she believes her son was listening. I know he heard me because, because I just know. You know, it, sometimes, like I say, you don't have to hear music. It's not the hearing, it's the vibe. It's the energy. And then she picks up her smartphone. She wants us to hear alone play piano. Oh, no, 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 you have to see this. Oh, you have to, okay, listen, okay, you have to listen. Yes, yes. This is alone. Listen. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Zikim Israel. This is NPR News. Join Here and Now's Robin Young on Tuesday, February 6th at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason. He'll be talking about his hit novel, North Woods. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at bipartisan legislation expected to be unveiled later today. It would use federal dollars to pay for neighborhood programs that provide safe places to park for people who are living in their cars. Cloudy and around 50 today. Tonight, upper 30s and overcast. Tomorrow, low 40s with a good chance of more showers through about mid-afternoon. It's 50 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Governor Healy plans to speak at the Associated Industries of Massachusetts Executive Forum later this morning. This is her second year speaking at the conference. She'll talk about business and economic plans for the state. She'll also talk about how to make Massachusetts more affordable. Nurses at Dana-Farmer Cancer Institute in Methuen have ratified their first union contract. That's after going on strike in June for better pay and benefits. The new contract lasts until 2026 and includes bonus and retroactive pay. An advertising agency plans to lease the former global headquarters of General Electric in Fort Point. Arnold Worldwide and its sister company tell the Boston Business Journal they're downsizing from their current location in downtown Crossing. The move is expected to take place later this year. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare, built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org.
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Gene therapy can apparently restore hearing to deaf people. That's according to a new report published in the journal The Lancet. It's the latest promising development from the rapidly advancing field of gene therapy. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now with all the details. So, wow, helping deaf people hear. What are uh, people reporting uh, exactly about this, Rob? So, A, researchers at Harvard and at a hospital in China treated six kids between the ages of one and seven who were born totally deaf. They have a rare genetic defect in a gene that produces a protein necessary to transmit sound signals from the ear to the brain. So the researchers infused a virus commonly used to ferry genes into the body, into their ears. The virus carried a working version of that gene into the cells in their inner ears in the hope those cells would then start producing a missing protein enabling the patients to hear and the researchers are reporting that it looks like it worked in five out of the six kids who were treated here's zhang yi chen from harvard's mass eye and ear who led the research before the treatment they couldn't hear a thing you could have put them the loudest sound in the ear they don't hear anything and now they can hear the hearing is restored in children who are otherwise completely deaf can't hear a thing we are absolutely thrilled Now, their hearing isn't totally normal. There's a chance they may still need hearing aids, but their hearing improved significantly, is still getting better, and at least one of the kids is hearing well enough to have started to regain some speech as well. Yeah, I mean, five out of six, that sounds pretty good to me. Um, You said, though, that uh, these kids have a very rare form of deafness, and the study only involved those six kids. So how important is that uh, fact? Yeah, so this is a very rare form of deafness, but for those kids, this could be huge. I I talked about this with Dr. Lawrence Lustig at Columbia University. I am really excited about this. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's the first time gene therapy has been successfully employed in any form of hearing loss. This is huge. Now, researchers will have to treat more patients to confirm how well it works and continue to follow the patients to see how much their hearing improves, how long it lasts, and how much speech they develop. But other research teams have produced similar results. It looks safe, and the hope is it will last a lifetime. And what really makes it significant is that it's a kind of a proof of concept that gene therapy can be used to treat deafness. Okay, now I don't want to get ahead of myself, Rob, but I mean, could this work for other forms of deafness? Yeah, that's a good question, but no one knows for sure, but these findings are certainly encouraging. So researchers are now planning to try to use this kind of gene therapy for dozens of other forms of genetic deafness, as well as someday potentially hearing loss caused by age and noise. You know, one challenge for this treatment is the gene is so big, they had to break it into two parts so the virus could carry it into the body. They might be able to use this similar approach for other forms of deafness. Here's, here's Dr. Lustig again. This is going to be the first, I think, of a number of types of this type of therapy coming down the pike. I think this is very promising for curing other forms of deafness down the road. All right, so what are they going to try next? 
Yeah, so several research teams will be reporting the results of using gene therapy to treat deafness at an upcoming scientific meeting, so we'll learn more there, and clearly we'll be hearing a lot more about the potential benefits of gene therapy for different forms of deafness. All right, that's NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Rob, thanks. You bet, A. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the growing dispute over the facts surrounding the crash of a military plane that Russian officials say killed 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war on their way to be exchanged. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country. Playing in Boston this March, written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. The war in Gaza is having an impact on Israel's universities, creating new tensions on campus. I can't even imagine a situation which I sit in my spot in my class and next to me sit a person that want me to die. How the war in Gaza is driving a wedge between Jewish and Palestinian students and teachers in Israel on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Israel is declassifying government and military documents in an effort to rebut genocide charges at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Federal regulators will allow Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets to fly once again after a panel detached mid-flight this month. And the latest GDP report shows the U.S. economy expanded at a rate better than expected in the last months of 2023. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the exhibition, Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away with over 700 Holocaust artifacts. Opens this March in Boston. TheAuschwitzExhibition.com Cloudy today and around 50. Upper 30s tonight and still overcast. Rain is likely beginning early tomorrow morning and lasting through mid-afternoon. It'll be in the low 40s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. A home for helium. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals who want to join an inclusive and unique culture. More information, including application at progressive.com careers. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The U.S. government owns a reserve of helium, and later today it's going to reveal bids by private companies hoping to take that reserve off the government's hands. There is a finite amount of helium on the planet, and yes, it's used for party balloons and Macy parade floats, but it is also critical for MRI machines, rocket fuel, and semiconductors. And industries that rely on it have been pushing for the government to delay the sale, as Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. 
The federal helium system in Amarillo, Texas, supplies over 20 percent of the country's helium, according to the Bureau of Land Management. A lot of its infrastructure dates to the Cold War era. The feds have been planning to sell the reserve to private industry since 1996, yet it's only in the last few years that the sale process has actually ramped up, though it's been delayed several times. But groups representing the medical device, semiconductor, and aerospace industries, which all rely on the noble gas, want it to be delayed even longer. In a letter to the Biden administration last fall, they warned that a sale could disrupt the country's supply of helium, which could, quote, bring industrial growth to a halt. But right now, the sale process is moving ahead. The government will unveil bids it received at 2 p.m. Central Time today. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. The International Court of Justice is expected to rule tomorrow on whether to order an interim stop to the war in Gaza as it decides the larger question of whether Israel is carrying out a state-led genocide there, as South Africa alleges. A ruling would be symbolic as the court has no way to enforce it. Part of the evidence South Africa has presented involves the level of destruction of civilian infrastructure in Gaza. Lily Jamali from Marketplace Tech has this report on how that destruction is mapped out. Israel says it's targeting Hamas militants, not Palestinian civilians, in response to the deadly Hamas attack on October 7th. But more than 25,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli strikes. And data compiled by researchers finds that nearly half the buildings in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed. Jamin Vandenhoek is a geographer at Oregon State. Virtually every neighborhood has been hit. Every refugee camp has likely been hit or damaged. There have been lots of reports on hospitals, schools being damaged, so it's it's very widespread. Vandenhoek and his partners have performed their damage analysis based on the European Space Agency's Copernicus Sentinel-1 satellite data. A few weeks ago, they determined that the potential damage in Gaza exceeded 100,000 buildings. That's an assessment that South Africa cites in its ICJ complaint against Israel. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. U.S. GDP grew at an annual rate of 3.3% in the fourth quarter, pretty much blowing expectations out of the water. Let's see if markets are reacting yet. Let's do the numbers. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 2 to 4 tenths percent range, with Dow futures up 61 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.135%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by the podcast, Sold a Story. Scientists have known for decades how children learn to read, but many schools are ignoring the research. Listen now to the full investigation. People experiencing homelessness who are living out of their cars need a safe place to park where they won't get robbed or harassed. Later today, House lawmakers will unveil bipartisan legislation to help with this problem. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Advocates say people living in vehicles often have not yet experienced the worst of homelessness, but they still need a lot of help to prevent sliding further into the margins of society. No one ever wanted to be homeless, but as long as I had a van, I didn't call myself homeless. That's 72-year-old Jan who asked that we only use her first name. Jan was without a permanent home for 10 years after retiring from a graphic design career and burning through her savings while living in Santa Barbara, a California enclave with a serious affordable housing shortage. Out in the streets, you know, my van was uh, broken into a few, few times. Laptops, phones were taken. 
always looking for a place to park where no one would bother me. Jan eventually found New Beginnings, a nonprofit that runs a number of homeless programs, including a monitored overnight parking program, often at donated church-owned lots, where there's also a bathroom, sometimes a place to shower, a place to do laundry. Probably at least 50%, maybe even slightly higher, of the people that are enrolled in the safe parking program are senior citizens. Cora Patton is a case manager at New Beginnings. We've also had a huge influx of families with small children. New Beginnings pioneered the idea of providing overnight parking 20 years ago today. Others around the country are trying to replicate it, but the organization's executive director, Christine Schwarz, says there's often a major barrier. One of the first questions that we receive from people who reach out for technical assistance is, how do you pay for this? There is no dedicated funding for this kind of population. That's because the Department of Housing and Urban Development can only fund physical shelters. Democratic Congressman Salud Carbajal, along with two fellow California lawmakers, a Republican and a Democrat, plans to introduce a bill next week to change the rules. My goal is to create a sense of support and bipartisanship so that people clearly understand that it benefits us all to help intervene those that find themselves in this circumstance. Carbajal has tried to federally fund safe parking programs before without success. This time, he's not asking for new funding, but the ability to redirect existing money. It costs more to get people back on their feet. So it's cost effective to be able to intervene and, and provide this service and program before people become fully homeless. Intervene because safe parking also comes with other help, as it did for Jan. In new beginnings, and say found me an apartment. I've been here almost three years now. You know, it's like I, I was given life back. New Beginning says its parking program costs a fraction of what it spends on aiding the homeless population at large. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. Overcast today with temperatures around 50, cloudy skies in upper 30s tonight. Then rain is likely beginning early tomorrow morning. It could continue through mid-afternoon Friday. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. It's 50 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.